Hello again. What is going on, my N-words? Today I am joined by Nicholas and Adrian. And I, once again, am Chucky Arla. And today's topic of discussion here on the Curse Discussions podcast is fascism. And by fascism, I don't mean uh, fasci-goy type or whatever. The... Uh, you know, neo-fascism or anything like that. I'm talking about historical fascism, its development and uh, its influence on modern thought, its origin, stuff like that. So, first of all, I think it might be useful to kind of start at the beginning. So, what do you guys think about the origins of fascism? Do you have any particular ideas on this? I know this is somewhat of a controversial historical subject. Um, Adrian, you want to go for it? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, the thing about fascism and the reason why it's so dumb that uh, basically everyone on the political spectrum that isn't fascist really likes calling other people fascist, including people like Richard Spencer, it, very humorously, uh, is because it is sort of, it's such a lightning in the bottle movement that kind of took things from all over the political spectrum and made it into something new, right? You had, you had former communists join. You had uh, leftists of basically all stripes join. You had conservatives join, reactionaries, even liberals to some extent, either participated in or sort of switched to uh, fascism, especially in fascist Italy where a liberal was made the economics minister. And also in Germany, where Helmut uh, Schell was a center-left progressive uh, before he joined the Nazi party. It is a very interesting, uh, whatever, potpourri of different ideas from different traditions. I mean, that's probably true, but I'm, I'm, I wonder like how, how far back you would like push fascism's origin story. Because, I mean, in my mind, I guess you could take it to... Um... You could take it back to like romanticism or I guess even enlightenment ideas like uh, or uh, or counter enlightenment ideas about about anti-materialism or um, sort of the general will or something like that. I mean, I, I had seen somebody that that tried to take it back to Machiavelli, but that seems like kind of retarded to me. I mean, but it but it does seem like like whatever the various strains were, they sort of coalesced like somewhere around the 1890s with all these various influences marxism anarchism like you said liberalism to some extent um combining with like like futurist or other avant-garde art movements um even i think we we shouldn't totally ignore uh, that you know social darwinism or or, or uh, ideas on, on race and race science following the colonial period played a role in this but yeah there, there were some weird thinkers or uh, that eventually sort of coalesced all these ideas like Sorel I know we want to talk about and I think that's probably where it starts from the 1880s 1890s onwards that is a good point in terms of where exactly we want to start it I would say that although there were some sort of proto-fascist themes or themes that would later be appropriated into what we would grow to call fascism that existed as far back as the counter-enlightenment like romanticism uh, the rejection of rationalism. Those things kind of brewed under the surface in Europe for a long time. 
And I think around the 1890s, they really started to coalesce into some sort of thing. And then World War I happened, and then I think that was a very important catalyst for fascist thought to further develop. But as we were talking about with Sorel, yeah, he, I think, is a really interesting figure in the development of uh, fascism because, you know, so, as you guys know, he was a syndicalist thinker in France, and he, over time, drifted closer to another guy, uh, Marat, who was like, I know I'm sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but he was a nationalist, although he was also kind of weird because I think what happened is he started praising Sorel's syndicalism, and then... I think Sorel like sent him his book and then they just began this bromance. There was also mm-hmm. another guy who was kind of an interesting figure who joined in with the three, Maurice uh, Barre, whatever. He was kind of interesting because he began his political career kind of as Adrian was t- alluding to as a not so much a liberal but kind of like a, a post-liberal socialist leaning Republican. And he stayed as a Republican, but he found himself drifting closer to the monarchists. So he never embraced monarchism, but all his like friends, his like political allies were monarchists, even though he considered himself a Republican. And that's how he came into contact with Marat, who was also a monarchist. Then they both embraced Sorel's syndicalism. I find it kind of interesting, too, that all of these early fascist thinkers, at least in we're talking about in this very early period of like the 1890s up to the 1910s, pre-World War One, basically, a lot of them seem to have basically been French. Yeah, it does seem, isn't that weird? Like fascism was so, like its basis is almost in France, or a lot of the thinkers are, but it never really, really attained uh, as much of prominence there as it did other, in other places. Another French guy, I don't know if you guys know about, is Gustave Le, Le Bon. Do you know how to pronounce this shit? Anyway, he was like, uh, he had this weird theory about like crowd psychology or uh, like how, how you can manipulate people as a charismatic leader. I guess he was one of the first guys to like really get involved in that. And, and I'm pretty sure that was at least somewhat influential as well. So yeah, I don't know why all these, all these weird ass bitches coming out of France. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, obviously as fascism, you know, where it first truly coalesced into what we could actually definitively call like this is fascism and actually they in fact called it fascism was in Italy, but that was a bit later. Yeah, um, I just wanted to touch on something that Nick said sort of in passing uh, when he brought up how Machiavelli was seen as sort of a, a precursor to fascism, mm-hmm. something like way out there in terms of the timeline that we're talking about, but I think it's not as silly as it might sound because Machiavelli, for all his good points and his faults, was sort of someone who believed in the a fascist doctrine of the, the nothing against the state, nothing outside the state, nothing without the state, I think, is the third one. Nothing without um, the state, kid. He had like the modernist post-Westphalian conception of a nation state that had a monopoly on the use of force and that the state should basically do everything in the political realm. And no one, no one else should be involved in that, which back in his day was pretty radical. By the time fascism came around, it wasn't that radical. Because seemingly by then, Machiavelli had already been like appropriated by uh, basically liberals. 
Well, I would say Machiavelli was a liberal in the sense that uh, Locke was a liberal, right? Not a radical necessarily, and someone who had ideologies when taken to you know their logical conclusion produced less than liberal results. But after all, he was he was a Republican, but he very strongly believed that the state should be sovereign. Was Machiavelli right? a materialist? Because it, it, I don't know if this is actually true, but it seems to me like. There's a certain common impulse in the both of them, like ag- against a certain type of metaphysics, which is basically like a very like action and reality and real life oriented a dynamic or a futurist. I don't know which word best describes this, but a certain yeah. metaphysics that's very opposed to ab- abstraction. Like Sorel was also very opposed to abstraction. I think I mean, this is kind of an interesting question because at the same time, fascism also includes a lot of people who are very interested in metaphysics. That's right? true, but this is like is a, a, something that is we'll, we're probably going to hit on a million times in this conversation, which is that like anything you can say about fascism, not literally, but there's like any way you try to taxonomize or categorize it, there's going to be so many exceptions and weird cases. But anyway, go ahead. I uh, yeah, I I agree to a certain extent, and um, I think if someone if someone's exposure to Machiavelli was just the prince, I would definitely understand how you could come off that Machiavelli was just a materialist who only cared about that, you know. But you have to you have to remember, he basically only writing the prince was literally just like a practical manual, right? He wrote dozens of other uh, works that didn't involve literally just the practical applications of political power as we're kind of venturing into not so much the actual political practice of fascism which obviously as i'm sure we know can be very flexible right because fascists don't are not too dogmatic about what kind of economic or political structure they want but as we're talking about the underlying philosophy of that i think this is where we start moving from france to italy Right. I know. So in France, we had that important like synthesis between syndicalism and nationalism, although nationalism and socialism had cooperated in the past in other movements as far back as 1848. The unique thing there was that the syndicalist structure, which I think later evolved into the economic corporatism that we associate with fascism. But anyway, as I was saying, as we start to talk about the philosophy and sort of the aesthetics of fascism, that really is where we get into, as Nick was talking about, the futurist movement. And with regard to fascism's sort of materialism or rejection of certain metaphysical doctrines, I think that that's pretty interesting. And I I, I think we should remember the context here is that fascism sort of came to be in a time when the scientific method was relatively new, in a time when people were starting to become atheists, atheism was starting to become accepted. I know I'm going to sound like a Dinesh D'Souza-ass nigga here, but um, <laughs> like like modernism, uh, relativism, stuff like that. And I think fascism really does have that existential thread that Adrian was talking about, where I, I, I think it has a certain reaction of if nothing matters like let's just make something matter let's just go let's do shit right like in the futurist manifesto 
Marionetti says, Let's break out of the horrible shell of wisdom and throw ourselves like pride-ripened fruit into the wide, contorted mouth of the wind. Let's give ourselves utterly into the unknown, not in desperation, but only to replenish the deep wells of the absurd. So I, I think this doctrine is deeply rooted in an underlying idea that all of this sort of rationalist uh, enlightenment kind of stuff is all bullshit anyway. None of it matters. It's just people saying words, words, words. So let's just get out there and do shit. And I guess that would be expressed in a political idea, which would be the synthesis of syndicalism and nationalism. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's also I, like an idea that idea. Sorrell said basically the exact, uh, well, he didn't say it quite as poetically, but he was one of these guys who thought that myths, you know, he the importance of myth is big in his writing as well. That... Can you talk yeah. more about that, the myth stuff? Because I don't know a ton about that. Well, uh, I believe he said something along the lines of myths are myths are, are not uh, a description of things, but are... Hold on one second, let me pull up the quote. It says, oh yeah, myths are not a descriptions of things, but expressions of a determination to act. A myth cannot be refuted since it is, at bottom, identical with the convictions of a group, being the expression of these convictions in the language of a movement. So, and that's like also sort of relates to why he thought violence was so acceptable and also why he didn't really like writing all that much. It's not that surprising that his writing is hard to read. He also says somewhere <laughs> else that uh, verbal communication is much easier than written <laughs> communication because words act on the feelings in a mysterious way and easily establish a current of sympathy between people. So this idea of like a sort of, it, it, this sort of contradicts what I said earlier about materialism, I guess, but but not really, because in essence, he's returning to what it means to be human. Like he's to be human is to be a myth maker. To be human is to verbalize our myths and to act violently or practically in pursuance of our myths. That actually is like an interesting thing. Like when we hear materialist, usually we either think about materialism as in the, the liberal concept of materialism as in you know the the stereotype of only counting or caring about dollars and cents right or some rational view of the world or marxist materialism which in, in basically in the same way just through a different method you come to a rash a quote-unquote rational understanding of the world but materialism doesn't necessarily imply rationalism all it implies is is that there is only the material world to work with, right? And by that standard, Sorel was definitely he may be very muddled on his uh, you know logical reasoning, but he's very he's very clear on how he seeks to change the world, right? And mm -hmm. and the importance of that change. So I think you could definitely call him. A materialist, so I don't think you're wrong, Nick, calling fascists materialists just because they don't hold to enlightenment ideas of uh, empiricism. Another really important element in futurism particularly, I think, is the notion of almost like, I want to call it starting history over or something like that. There, there's, a, there's this weird tension between, on the one hand, obviously fascism particularly in its political form fetishized the historical past a uh, romantic or heroic past for a particular people quite a lot but then on the other hand there really is this idea of upending all these traditions 
in favor of like a mythology that may or may not have ever actually existed or to varying extents. And I think that that can be interestingly expressed again in uh, Marietti's writings on he, for some reason, was really against uh, libraries museums like, <laughs> yes burn the libraries yeah that's what he said he, burn said, the book. he said in truth i tell you that daily visits to museums libraries and academies cemeteries of empty exertion cavalries of crucified dreams registries of aborted beginnings are for artists <laughs> as damaging as the prolonged supervision by parents of young people <laughs> So that's because <laughs> that was what history was to him. It was like words, words, words. It's all bullshit. Let's just uh, figure something out and just do something. Yeah, yeah, that, and and that's that plays into uh, Sorel's idea of um, there is something transformative about action, and to him, the only action was violence. If you were not being in conflict with something else, to you know. Uh, rule over it right make a domain out of it you weren't acting and you were literally lesser you were mixing your labor right (laughs) yeah i mean that is an interesting like you know you know we talk i mean we're all libertarians here we know that man acts is the basis for praxeology right or at least one of them for sorel man acts is the basis for his ideology but he can only act when he's being violent and that violence is transformative and transcendent. He thought that was the only way he didn't even like necessarily workers, but he thought the general strike was the way to move society as a whole forward because class warfare was warfare that needed to happen within a society. Sounds Hegelian to me. It was it's it's very Hegelian. Yes, it was only from the people that one could restore the energy that the ruling classes had lost. It's only through class warfare that the traditions, or at least the power that the traditions had, could be taken back from society. Because the the fact is that Sorel really hated the the bourgeois age. He hated that uh, there was peace in Europe and that people had a uh, peaceful, lazy, prosperous lives. Yeah, that is Um, a really big theme in fascism. This like real deep resentment of bourgeois, like middle class and also the aristocracy. And at the same time, uh, this deep fear of decadence. I know that around this time, you know, historians, when talking about the Roman Empire, could sort of explain its fall in some ways by stagnating, having, having not, nowhere left to go, nothing left to do. So it just sort of became de- What's that quote like, uh, hard men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times? That is a very fascist quote in the sense like fascism was just totally fascinated and totally terrified of civilizational stagnation uh, as a result of just having nothing left to do as a result of nihilism. And they were worried that this would just lead to aimless hedonism. This would lead to just total civilizational decline. So you need to have an enemy. A people needs to have a raison d'etre. You need to have a mission. 
and that is sort of this bond that can bring society together. I think one way to describe fascism might be basically being drunk on like camaraderie, drunk on that feeling you get when it's uh, it's you and a bunch of other guys, you know, facing down another group of guys. That's really thrilling. That that's adrenaline. So imagine just wanting the entirety of society to be like that all the time. So to me, this kind of gets to why fascism is a bit incoherent to begin with, like why there's so much trouble like intellectualizing it and studying it is that like it really is something similar to that. Like it's getting drunk on a feeling or it's it relates very heavily to feelings. It's it's a very feeling based ideology. It's a which it's also a very aesthetic based ideology. Like so in studying fascism, like you are in a sense studying like poetry and art a lot of the time. And it's hard to just like rationally deduce that and parse it out. I mean, even a lot of if you're looking to like study like internal politics of or internal like dynamics of fascist movement in Italy, like you're you're, you're looking at like art criticism a lot of the time. And like you're reading like Mussolini's thoughts on architecture and shit like that. And like that itself is where a, a political discourse is happening, even if it's sort of at a sublimated or not explicitly stated level. But this also reminds me of um I mean, because this this is happening within like art communities and like uh, people, like, this avant-garde side of, of fascism, which is, seems to be somewhat in tension with a more conservative traditionalist side of fascism. It makes me wonder, like, it's almost disappointing to me that um, we don't see these, how this would have played out. Like there's all these like truncated end states of what fascism might have looked like. Like if the if if Italy had won and if the futurists, you know, had been sort of in conflict with more traditionally minded people or if the more leftist Marx Marxoid influenced uh, fascists had tried to wrest the movement back their, their direction like and factionalize. Right, exactly. But Bombaci, exactly. And in fact, this this reminds me of I'll, I'll send you guys this video later. It's like a doc. It's like a 10 minute documentary about hipster fascists in uh, <laughs> in Italy. But it but they have a party. Casa oh. Pound. Do you know what I'm talking I, about? Yes, I was going to actually talk about this. Casa Pound is very interesting. Yes, it is. So, like, I have a screen cap here of like the people on their wall in their office who they like idolize or whatever. And there's bum, there's some names there that would be obvious. Uh, but like, we got weird names too. We got Bombachi. We got Tolkien. Somehow he gets in there. We got Mi- M- Mishima. Ka- uh, Jack <laughs> Ka- Kerouac is in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we talk about who Bombachi is for our audience who might not know? Uh, you might know the most, so, Chucky. I'm not sure. Okay. So Bombachi basically was an Italian Marxist who wound up siding with uh, the Axis during the Second World War and was an ardent supporter of uh, Mussolini's government. And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what his rationale was considering they were, you know, fighting an uh, an actual Marxist state. And he was not a fascist. You know, a lot of fascists were former Marxists who converted, particularly that happened in France a lot. In Bombacci's case, he was a Marxist. He believed in, like, you know, uh, historical materialism, the dialectic, all that stuff. But he just thought that Mussolini was the best, was the way to to Marxism, was the way to ultimately the withering away of the state and all that stuff. He had a famous quote that said something like, the true uh, home of the revolution is not in Moscow, but is in Rome, or something like that. So I I found that really interesting. He was actually uh, with Mussolini up to the very end when he was killed. It was Mussolini's, like, girlfriend, Bombacci, and him 
and I think it was the three of them were caught together trying to escape and hung upside down. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, he was one of those three. That's funny. Or one of the. Yeah. What's also weird to me is like Bombachi apparently earlier on in his career um, had a problem with what they call or what like I'm, I read as the uh, right wing or the conservative wing of the Italian Socialist Party because the conservative wing wanted to side with like the anti-fascist or like the liberals or the Republicans or whatever. And him, the radical, wanted to side with the fascists. So that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And uh, yeah. this is a good transition, too, in terms of talking about the origins of fascism and some misconceptions. This is where we're all going to get uh, boomer-pilled on uh, fascism <laughs> really being <laughs> Democrats are the real fascists. But uh, I did want to talk about what you were saying. Obviously, Mussolini himself was a member of the radical faction of the Italian Socialist Party. And um, he was quite affiliated with anarchism. Actually, his dad was, was very affiliated with anarchism, particularly illegalism. There was this weird thing, like, it almost has some parallels. This is jumping ahead a little bit, but I, I wanted to say this. It has some kind of weird parallels from the modern alt-right almost, or at least there is a certain faction of the alt-right who were all former anarcho-capitalists, right? But moderate libertarians didn't become alt-right. If they became anything, they maybe became alt-light or something, or most of them probably just stayed libertarian. But there was a substantial like movement within modern libertarianism of just at first completely rejecting the state, being the most radical and saying like, no, we cannot do this, we cannot do this, and then like kind of turning that dichotomy on its head and becoming, uh, you know, authoritarian statists, basically, in the tradition of the right. You can almost call Mussolini a left-wing Cantwell of sorts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is something to explore. Um, and I think Ernst Jünger, a big fascist thinker, did speak to that kind of thing, right? Uh with his idea of the anarch, uh, not an anarchist, but someone who did not think he he was in search of someone who could rule him, basically, right? Some someone who was an anarchist, basically he was rebelling against the the rulers of his day, but didn't didn't dogmatically say that you know rule is bad just that these people cannot rule me right mm -hmm. now if you, you might not think that's a you know a, a good case necessarily but I, I i do think like these people especially especially during the 2016 campaign these people who became fascists or Nat, national socialists or whatever whatever they would call themselves they found their man right and this and this is why uh, at least extent, they found it for like a few months well we're, we're right and, and this is important when trump did not display fascist principles even in like at all in any sense and you can listen to this this is one of the great the great moments of the alt-right was when TRS, the right stuff, .biz, the, the, the you know, alt-right podcast, found out about the attack on Assad 
with the Tomahawk cruise missiles, I think it was last April, and they blew their lids. And that is something to listen to. This is that is the rage of the betrayed because they were anarchs who thought they found their ruler, right? Sort of having to reject him. Like they could not they could not accept uh that he had done this, right? And you and you can listen to it. These these guys go on five minute long rants about it. It's it's very interesting, like, to listen to it because they seem to have genuine emotions about it. Something I wanted to say about that. Now, I agree that these these are certainly very interesting historical parallels. Right between the evolution, for example, of a lot of Italian syndicalists, Spanish syndicalists and anarchists into fascists, uh, and the evolution of contemporary anarcho-capitalists in the Anglosphere into basic alt-right or whatever, they, however they would identify. But I also want to point out, this is an interesting thing, that despite those historical parallels, there isn't really a sense of continuity between modern fascist or so-called fascist, like alt-right, even neo-Nazi, whatever you want to, like all, all these different little things, none of them quite capture what fascism actually was. Uh, I, I wouldn't really consider any of them fascist because to me, it seems like fascism basically was destroyed by physical force. Like it almost ceased to exist as an ideology after the Second World War. I mean, of course, you had, you know, some smaller underground movements. Uh, I know that um, you had, what was his name? The, the SS guy who helped the the coup in Greece in the 60s, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, what was it? Otto, Otto Streisinger? Otto like uh, Skorzeny. Otto Skorzeny. But, yeah. you know, so you had obviously still fascists around, but fascism stopped reproducing itself as a movement. And I think what you saw later on with people like George Lincoln Rockwell in the modern day, people like Heimbach and the traditionalist worker party, um, yeah. they're not really like fascist in the sense. Because, like, so take Hitler, for example. He's a famous national socialist. But. He is? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, like, he wasn't even, like, on, a white man. nationalist. Right. Like that's probably the easiest example to point out. He was a German nationalist and he had strong feelings about Aryanism. He had like weird racial theories, but though he wasn't really a Aryanism was not he was not a pan-European. Right. For example, obviously, we know like the famous thing is, oh, the Japanese honorary Aryans, whatever. He, Ryan Falk talked about how he allied with Japan to attack Russia. And that was so bad for pan-Europeans, whatever. But. There's more to it than that. Obviously, there's the thing that he felt that uh, the, the peoples of Islam will always be closer to us than, for example, France, right? I mean, his theory was, <laughs> his theory was not that, um, like, this sort of hyperborean pan-Europeanism. It was that you had this group a long time ago who lived somewhere in the Caucasus or something. Well, can, can I say something? That is hyperboreanism. I mean, well... And this is something Ryan. So. Well, this is something Ryan talked about a little more recently than he talked about uh, the Hitler thing. Um, and this is sort of part of a bigger point. 
So hyperboreanism was, I mean, I've linked you um, or maybe just the group, the, the arguments between Otto Strasser and Adolf Hitler. And one of the, the arguments was about the, the emergence of art in, for example, Egypt and China. Strasser thought that that said that they were uh, competent civilizations. Hitler said, and I quote, you have liberal opinions. <laughs> and he went on to say, Lib cucks BTFO. Yeah, literally. <laughs> he went on to say, the only good art that came from Egypt and China are the result of an Aryan minority in those populations. Right. So that goes into what I was saying, right? So it's this theory that a long time ago you had this group from outside Europe called the Aryans, which sort of corresponds to the Indo-Europeans, although the Nazis took this much further than it actually went. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely way too far. <laughs> Top but ten pranks that even, went way even too far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, like way further than racial scientists were ever willing to go even back then before we mapped the genome they were like there there's no anthropological proof for this yes. like why is himmler going to tibet yes and claiming that this is the root of like aryan civilization but, or whatever yeah, so the idea that you know aryans spread out into every race and hitler did think that you know the the most pure aryans remaining in the earth were in germany and that that it sort of radiated out from Germany, so, like, other Germanic peoples were kind of Aryan, certain West Slavs were kind of Aryan, uh, and that those are the ones that he wanted to assimilate into it when he, in the um, General Plan Ost. But th this was not white nationalism, this was German nationalism and some fucking yes. weird racial theories. White nationalism as an ideology, I don't think really could originate uh, anywhere, at least in the 20th century, could originate anywhere besides the New World. Because it's really the New World where the identities of European ethnicities are weakened so much that they can get mixed up and someone who's like Irish, uh, Italian, German, French, English, whatever, all of that just gets mixed together in this fucking El Gablino who... <laughs> What they just contrast that with, uh, you know, Africans, blacks, or or uh, Chinese, or uh, Amerindian, you know, mestizos. Um, right. I mean, yeah, identity. I mean, this is like why the uh, you you know the, the 1934 conference of like the inter like the the fascist international, like that's why this is this basically failed because these people were not white nationalists, really. They were nationalists of whatever country they were from, and they couldn't even agree on... They could basically agree on nothing about what fascism should be. That's actually very interesting. Could you talk more about that? Because I, I honestly don't know anything about the 1934 fascist conference. Um, well, I mean, it, it had, a, it had a representatives from fascist parties from all over Europe. I think it maybe even had, like, quasi-fascist people from like South America. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, it essentially failed because the countries were not interested in cooperating with it. They couldn't agree on on what was more important, like racial issues or ethnic issues or economic issues. They uh, I think Spain just basically said, we don't want anything to do with this at all. We're just a purely nationalist movement. And it, they never had a the second one. The just said that? Yeah. Which is a little strange, right? Considering. Yeah. 
interaction between them and Portugal and South America. But I mean, this kind of gets to the question. I mean, uh, Chucky, it sounds like you have like you've been saying this is fascist. This is not fascist. I mean, I mean, it seems like you have a relatively concrete conception of what fascism is and fascism is in your mind. So, I mean, like what what is it? Uh, I have no idea. (laughs) well okay so to me i think this kind of gets into like a difficult question about how to define fascism because so so first of all one of the most important things about fascism is the fact that it is for an ideology unusually divorced from a specific thinker uh, you know, I, we, you know, we've been talking about Sorel, Marat, Marionetti, uh, you know, whatever. But all of those people, they're relatively obscure, right? Like most, like normies who will say this is fascist, that's it. None of them even know who any of those people are. But even a lot of people in who were nominally members of fascist movements probably didn't know who those people were, especially later on. Uh, like, all, you know, you would have... This is contrasted with, for example, in uh, Vietnam, even like these rural agricultural peasants, they have like at least a loose grasp of who Karl Marx was. They may not understand Marxism, but they would say like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. Karl Marx, he's the good thing. But in Europe, like I'm pretty sure some random fucking Hungarian in like the cross arrow party had no idea who fucking, you know, barre would be like they just would not know and so that is something that's pretty interesting in the sense that fascism it makes it very hard to define it as an ideology because if you don't have one person deciding okay this is what we believe in this is what we don't believe in then it becomes very difficult to set ideological bounds for this is fascism this isn't fascism it's almost like the difference between a like a constructed language like esperanto versus a natural language like english but anyway i so this gives rise to a different explanation which is one that i have sort of wrestled with and this is the view of um robert paxton who's kind of a cuck he said his argument was that basically fascism should not be viewed as an ideology and that when one is analyzing fascism they should essentially pay no attention to like its intellectual stylings because that was all just like noise whatever they were just saying random stuff what they should pay attention to is the actual tendencies of what fascism did right which is sort of interesting because this gets into the historical materialist angle on it right we can talk about fascism as a historical phenomenon of something that happened after the great depression in the western world and after world war one both of those two things combined uh, and produced this trauma and fascism is the expression of increased nationalism increased uh, authoritarianism uh you know stuff like like modernism all, all of these trends which are not necessarily ideological but are more just historical and okay but then we have like a basket of phenomena right like modernist violent authoritarian stuff like that so we we can make make a list of things like that i I think this is basically uh if i trace it out if i'm correct about this basically after world war ii people couldn't even think about fascism properly at all they just thought it was like evil even like academics thought about thought this way and then by the 70s 
they had figured out that they could make a little laundry list of stuff that fascist regimes typically were like or did. And and then I and then from there, it, it, it kind of petered out or went random directions like this dude that you just mentioned had his cuck theory. Um, there was I mean, I, to, to me, what was interesting out of that debate, though, is that we had this idea of what's a fascist minimum like, OK, we can come up with a bunch of right wing authoritarian regimes, but then we'll or ones that were violent or populist. But then we'll realize that many of those don't really seem fascist to us. Yeah. So what is the like minimum criteria that something needs to have? And if it doesn't have that, then it's definitely not fascist. Well, that's the inherent problem with this sort of definition, right, is that you're you're going to catch things in your net that don't seem to you to be fascisty and you're going to pick up uh you're going to miss things that seem to you to be fascisty and and really honestly in the post-war world what i think most people even a lot of academics their in conception of fascism is going to be inherently tied to being a racist uh, white male who kind of sympathized with the Axis during World War II, which is a bad way of thinking about it because even a lot of racist white males who sympathized with the Axis during World War II were not fascists, and there were plenty of fascists who either were not racist, were not white, or did not sympathize with the Axis. Yes. Well, I'll tell you this one guy, this one historian, uh, Roger Griffin, I think. I'm pretty sure he's a historian. Anyway, he, his like minimum criteria that he came up with was that it had to be what he, he has this like jargony bullshit word for it that I can never pronounce. It's like palingenetic ultranationalism. But what that basically means is that it's, do little it's like, yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> it's like a form of ultranationalism, which uh, is very concerned with national rebirth. That's pretty much the idea. And that like, we have the idea that like your country is experiencing a crisis or a, or a, or, or a decadence and that there needs to be a phase of violence for a rebirth to occur. And that, uh, without this, something cannot be considered fascist. Do you think that's like plausible or is this just like something that they're trying to plug the holes? I, I think that that could be used as sort of a provisional, uh, definition, definition, at least of fascism as a sort of, you know, in its political form. But I think that that also might, pick up a lot of people who were just sort of strung along with fascism. Uh, you know, good examples of that would be in like Hungary, uh, you know, Miklos Horthy or in Romania. I can't even think of the guy's name, but uh, you know, these were leaders who were just general kind of like authoritarian dictators or in Portugal, Salazar, right? And they were strung along and uh, it's not excluding Salazar. They were strung along in sympathetic axis and they had this nationalist stuff, but they didn't really have, they weren't the same as like Mussolini's Italy or, or, or Hitler's Germany. They didn't have that underlying ideological element of fascism. They just had some of its characteristics. Sure. I mean, but that's why it's a minimum, right? So like they, it, 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 it's overly broad, but it's, I think a pretty, it's like, okay, if some, if a regime is modernist, then we, it might be fascist. If it's anti-modernist, well, it could also be fascist. It could, yeah. but that, I don't think that's the case with this sort of rebirth oriented nationalism. I think that it'll, it'll be a little too broad, but it's, it's the best thing that I've seen somebody come up with, although, yeah, it's intrinsically problematic for the reason you suggested. 
one of my favorite examples, this is a little bit of an autistic sidetrack, but I have to, you know, shill for the motherland of the kind of thing you're talking about, the uh, rebirth-oriented hypernationalism would be Alci uh, Naheiserke in uh, Ireland, the Architects of the Resurrection, which is uh, a really fucking badass name. Their political agenda in Ireland was to, like, enlist a massive, like, conscript army, uh, ally with the Axis, like, create national corporatism, invade Northern Ireland, ban speaking English in public to, like, resurrect... <laughs> <laughs> to resurrect Gaelic culture, which would have been a massive feat. But anyway, that's just sort of an interesting side note. Ireland's an interesting example because it was they had a fascist movement there, but they were a colonized country essentially, yeah. or literally. I mean, th how, did that happen a lot? I can't really think of. Well, too many th that's places. actually. Um, well, the 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 big other example would be Brazil with the integralists yeah. during the interwar period, but of of course they eventually uh, actually Brazil is the biggest, of course, but in Chile. There was a large fascist. Yes. Uh, what are they called? Nazistas or something. Nazistas, yes, exactly. And it culminated during the mid 1930s in a crackdown. Uh, well, they, they, they attempted a coup by taking over some government buildings, the Nazistas, and the, um, the government totally just uh, massacred them, arrested hundreds of Nazistas, and executed them. Yeah. Which is which a, was based. It's got late thrown out of helicopters. I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, that it is a nice thing to point out. I mean, and by the way, this was the Liberal Party, the National yes. Liberal Party, based that... liberal uh, militarism. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I, okay, this is something that we kind of skirted over too, and I, I want to bring the conversation back to this shilling, though. So. We didn't really get too in-depth when we were talking earlier about um, the ideological origins of fascism and its place on the left-right spectrum, traditionally. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is something that I have sort of um, fairly strong opinions about. So my view, basically, is that fascism is an outgrowth of the same, the same tree that... that you know, something like Marxism or other leftist ideologies grew out of. Uh, and this diverged from both classical liberalism and traditional, like, reactionary conservatism, like aristocratic type stuff, a little bit farther back around the 19th century. Um, obviously, we know that the word fascism originally comes from, like, the Italian uh, fascists, which were like basically labor unions. They were sort of syndicalist labor unions. Well, I mean, you, even further than that, obviously, the, the fascists are symbols from the Roman Republic. Yes, right? so the, the labor unions were named after the old, like the literal bundle of wood. Yes, exactly. It, 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 was, it, was, it was literally like a collectivist Idea, the idea of a collective. That the workers right? cannot be broken when they're bundled together, just like it's hard to break a bundle of sticks. Right, right. They're one mighty faggot. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can see similar stuff in, in the Falangist movement in Spain. I know there's a song where they're singing, uh, Fuera, 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 Capital. Down with Capital, basically. Fuera, 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 Capital. Up with the syndical state. Viva, 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 viva. They, they specifically had a, 
attacks on monarchism a lot. Uh, in that song, they said, uh, we don't want idiot kings who don't know how to rule, which is interesting because during the Spanish Civil War, they were allied with the Carlist and the Alfonsoist militias. Although there was a lot of tension there between the sort of aristocratic conservative faction that fought communism and the syndicalist fascist faction that fought communism. I know there was one incident that I'm aware of where like there was a Carlist meeting or something and a, a phalangist radical like threw a grenade in there and it killed a few people. <laughs> oh my god. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um and but in general they were I mean so they were allies, is your yeah. position what I'm trying to get just get a good feel of your position here. Like what exactly are you saying? Like because clearly in a sense they were I mean they were allied like you say with monarchists ultimately. Like, I think basically the way to think about fascism is, if you look at its intellectual history, they were basically some kind of weirdo leftists who, like, drifted and became more comfortable on the right, but they still had some underlying disdain for the core values of the right. A good analogy might be the neoconservative movement, right? Like, think about mm -hmm. a lot of uh, Trotskyists who kind of became neoconservatives, but they're still... There has always been this inherent tension. They're never quite comfortable on the right, right? Because they they're, they're spiritually yeah, leftist. They're, yeah, they're spiritual. They don't get along think, really with like the whole like whoa, like Ted Cruz type. Like they're like, what are these? I re I remember one one of one of the big conservatives back in the day, when neoconservatism was in, in its infancy, and the 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 all the neoconservative thinkers, the first wave, had just joined. He he sort of analogized it with a uh, you know a whore that had joined the church, right? Uh -huh. He said, "Oh yeah, it's it's all very well that a whore has joined the church, right? We we want more of that, but we shouldn't be too uh, enthusiastic about the the whore. She can't start the sermon all the time, you know." There's also more. This is musical evidence because i like i'm a fan of fascist the uh, music but in uh the horst was the lead obviously the which was the co-national anthem along with uh deutschland Überalles in nazi germany yeah if you weren't gonna say this i was okay yeah so obviously <laughs> in the song it talks about comrades who were killed fighting reactionaries and and that that is a reference obviously to during the weimar republic the paramilitary street battles where there was Obviously, the uh, the SA, the brown shirts, um, that was the the not the National Socialist faction. There was there was also a few like conservatard paramilitaries who most of the time they didn't fight, but they also did sometimes fight. Especially as the Nazis got into power, they started fighting a bit, and then they banned some conservative parties. Yes, and and just just to add something, yeah. they they said reaction in the same verse that they were talking about communists right so it, they literally said it like yeah yeah the reactionaries the monarchists the center party were as much of an enemy as yeah so socialists and that, communists uh, fucking atheists yeah <laughs> yes. well i mean i just want to push back on this a little bit because like all right i i i, I obviously agree with a lot of what you're saying like the 
a lot, perhaps most, of the intellectual roots and uh, sort of their way of doing things. They are spiritually leftist and historically uh, very, very closely related to the left. But, I mean, fascism is really such a su such an eclectic movement that categorizing it as a leftist ideology or a rightist ideology is, to me, it's just you, we're, we're going to get into the same definitional problem that we... That's a good you point. You know, kind of avoided earlier. Yeah, it, it, it is actually a really good point. And I just want to say, like, the kind of people that um, fascism appeals to is probably going to be predominantly conservative slash right-wing people because of its focus on uh, martialism and because of its focus on, like, inequality or sort of, like, how do you say it? Like qualified inequality, right? Fewer prints up and other things. This the syndicalist uh, way of organizing, where you know uh, we just put someone in charge to do the thing. The syndicalist corporatist way of organizing. That would be a funny thing to uh, to epically troll anarcho syndicalists, right? Like just start calling them corporatists. <laughs> oh my god, that would actually because be... you know, like the fucking like uh, obviously like basic bitch libertarians always talk about it. it's not capitalism it's corporatism uh sorry <laughs> yeah, syndicalists are cor they're not cap they're corporatists mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh nick your point about fascism being so eclectic and coming from all these different things i think that what i was saying in regards to fascism being like a left-wing movement that becomes truer the more early fascism you're talking about because yes absolutely what actually happened was fascism in its pragmatism um it made all these compromises and it kind of consoled and absorbed like a lot of just general right-wing elements into its ranks and it diluted itself in that way like and th there was a lot of sort of uh party state tension uh as a result of this and particularly in italy where although mussolini he had the most violent takeover of uh, any fascist uh, country uh, other than during World War II or something. There was just tons and tons of street fighting, but he also did not have that much control over the fascist party. And there was at one point, I believe, where the fascist party like threatened to overthrow him because they were saying he was like being too much of a conservatard, and then he like cocked and like uh, listened to them a bit more. Yeah, well, Italy is a weird example because I feel like it goes in a pendulum almost. Like, they start out kind of more lefty version of fascist, then they have to compromise and become more conservative, and then after they're getting fucked and they have to re like make their second country, whatever the hell it's called, the Italian public, Social Republic, the Italian Social Republic. Then they went back the other way, and then now that they're not in power anymore and they don't have to make compromises, the uh, like Italian neo-fascist movements that I see typically uh, seem more in line with like the original uh, iteration of fascism. Yeah. And, and this is also true, obviously, for other countries, right? Like you can look at, um, you know, Germany, right? Like the, the old Nazi party was, was more left-wing, but there wasn't really a place uh, for the Strasserites or even um, Ernst Rahm, I guess you could say, was kind of left-wing too, although he was just sort of a thug. Uh, <laughs> but those were all impractical elements of the ideology, which someone like Hitler, who was more pragmatic, uh, obviously got rid of in the Night of the Long Knives. 
So that is an important thing. Fascism, I think, is sort of an inherently pragmatic ideology. We're getting close to running out of time here, but I do want to make another point here, um, which was earlier on we were talking about how there isn't really continuity between modern like alt-right fascism and uh you know neo-fascist whatever and uh like historical fascism we talked about how they're not white nationalists to me it almost seems like it, it's it's kind of like they're using fascism as a symbol of revolt against the uh liberals or yeah, socialists the, 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 or, or the jews yes, exactly and and you know what a good example of that is i i can think of a couple in the Boston Tea Party, right, like the fucking patriots dressed up as Native Americans, right? Like, mm-hmm. why did that's, they do that? that's a good example. I'm pretty sure the reason that they did that was because, like, people th- saw Native Americans as these wild, rebellious, uh, free spirits who hated being, like, oppressed or whatever. So that's what they, they were like, oh, you know, we're fucking doing that. But it was sort of this distorted conception, and, like, a Native American would probably say, oh, what, what are you guys doing, right? Uh, another example with Native Americans would be, um, have you guys ever seen the music video uh, for America by Rammstein? Of course. Yeah, so you know, they they dress up as like Native Americans. I think, at least this is my gay interpretation of that, is they're sort of doing like a modern version where they're like, oh, we revolt against the American neoliberal Disney World imperialism, McDonald's. Listen. My fascism is not a costume, okay? Yeah, we're a culture, not a costume. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but... I, and part of that is intimately related to the left's misidentification of what fascism is, right? Because on the left, like, they tend to just group fascism together with all other right-wing ideologies, whether it's, you know, uh, extreme laissez-faire capitalism, they'd group it with that. They'd also group it together with, like, religious fundamentalism. Although there was overlap in, like, the Romanian Iron Guard, but whatever. Uh, they'd also group it together with just inherent, like, hierarchy, right? And obviously this is a big misidentification. Uh, kind of in the same way that... It, there's an inherent tendency in humans, I think, to want to see only one enemy, right? So they combine all of their enemies into this big, like, atrocidad that's not true. I know that, like, uh, some people think that uh, anarcho-communists and Marxists are the same thing. They would conflate them. Uh, and, and I think this is kind of similar to what the left does, right? They, they think that uh, reactionaries and fascists are just the same thing, or libertarians and fascists are the same thing, or, or at least that all a fascist is is a more extreme version of, like, Ted Cruz, which obviously is just not true. And I think that there's sort of a unique situation with fascism though because what happened is is that since fascism was so violently suppressed following the second world war uh fascists don't have not really been able to speak for themselves in a loud platform for a while and they haven't been able to say like no that's not what we are and because of that these neo-fascist movements which arose sometimes decades later did not know what fascism was and they sort of just they bought this like line that like leftists were pushing like oh fascism is just like a more extreme version of ted cruz and they're like yeah fuck yeah i'm a really extreme ted cruz who's also racist ah you know yeah i actually have a funny anecdote that just happened to me yesterday about this topic what happened was i was at my normie friend's house playing this game called secret hitler not sure if you know about it 
it's pretty fun. But part of the game, uh, you have to like basically LARP as a fascist and, pa and, and you have to pass fascist policies. So after he passes one, he says, uh, okay, now all guns are legal. There's my fascist policy. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Although I will say that's kind of a conservatory meme. I don't, I don't think that's completely true, the Hitler gun control thing. Okay, well, here's the thing about that. Since I am a big, like, gun fag, so I've argued about this a lot. And yeah, too, like, the, like, alt-right thing is like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we can look through this. And actually, he loosened laws about guns. And that's true to some extent. If you actually look into the laws, he, uh, Hitler and the Nazi regime loosened gun laws, but it still operated under, like, it made it easier to get a gun and sort of loosened the regulations on permits and stuff. But the big, the big sort of, uh, what do you call it? The catch was the party was now in control of granting permits, right? Like, to an American, the idea of gun rights is sort of just, you know, shall issue, right? Like, you, if there's no outstanding reason why your local policeman wants to, like, uh, prevent you from having a gun, you get a gun, right? But in Europe, it's a little different, right? Um, it's May issue. It's, if there's... Like, even if he's like, uh, maybe this guy shouldn't get a gun, you don't get a gun, even now. And think about it when suddenly the sheriff was a national socialist and you were a Jew or a communist or a union member or something like that, right? Like, <laughs> like it's like the, the centrist opinion. It's like, yeah, sure, um, Nazis weren't more gun control-y in a sense, than the Weimar Republic, which, to be fair, had to deal with a low-level civil war happening, right? There's a reason they were kind of like, mm, we probably should be very selective on who we give gun permits to, even though they didn't really stop there being, you know, uh, violence in the streets, sometimes involving firearms. Mm -hmm. but, now, but now that there was, you know, peace... Um, the Nazis were like, yeah, if you're if you're good with the, your local Nazi party official, you can get a gun. Not exactly the same thing as the Second Amendment. One final point I want to make here is just quickly revisiting uh, the connection between anarchism and uh, fascism. There's a really good article on um, this blog, uh, NR Cranks, about that. Uh, or the non-anarchist the non is what it is. And it, it really talks about, this is something I find interesting, or this is sort of my own angle on it, I should specify, but that's a good article on the background. We talked about Mussolini and also um, Bombacci being like the, the far, the more extreme like revolutionary insurrectionist wing of the uh, Italian Socialist Party. And also with regard to illegalism, right, which was popular in that faction of the party, I think that there's sort of an interesting continuity between the disdain for, like, meekly following the law and submitting yourself to participate in the political process 
via a party or something. Uh, and this embrace of, you know, just fucking shooting people, shooting cops or whatever. Um, and there's sort of a continuity there into the fascist disdain for the conservatard principle of rule of law, like more rule of law. We can't. That's true. Like even in a in a conservative authoritarian country um, in Europe, like the, it would be largely, in my understanding, like police and courts and this sort of thing that would be like cracking down on the leftists or something. But in a fascist regime, you just the party is doing right. it. The, the street exactly. street moms are doing it. Yeah. it, it and that's that has to do with fascism tendency to build in an organ outside of the traditional organs of the state to execute the people's will or whatever. It's kind of basically what it is, is it's this the continuity of the idea of real niggas do real nigga shit. Yeah, and, and talking about the uh, you know, the people's will, right? Um it's sort of a mold buggian, right? Uh Mencius Moldbug's idea that fascism is sort of a democratic idea. And that uh, it sort of relies on the people's will. And Peter Hitchens talks about uh, the idea that Hitler really liked uh, plebiscites. Yeah. And he he I saw mean, that as right? exactly, and and other and other things like Schlesig, uh, Holstein, and uh, all kinds of things. Uh, Austria. He thought that much to and, the mal- well, malaise of. Uh... Mussolini and the Austro-fascists and and Ludwig von Mises and well definitely Ludwig von Mises and a a very someone who really liked democracy and saw it sort of used against him but anyway I want to say we have to basically end the episode now we've run a little bit over so is there any last quick points either of you'd like to make aww all right. No, I'm okay. good. I, I, I would I would I would like to make this is the difference between fascism and what it considered other than communism, its main opponent, liberalism. Um, and I think what we've all gotten from this conversation was that fascism was a movement that sought higher values than uh, the society it was living in, right? Yeah. And if we're talking about the turn of the century, especially the interwar period, that system was liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. And liberalism pretty undoubtedly uh, improved the world materially, right? Like people live longer and better and more fulfilling lives under liberalism. But the problem was there wasn't conflict right? Like Pax Britannia and the later Pax uh, Americana, people lived in long periods of time without undergoing uh, what fascists saw as transformative violence and strife. And they thought in the same way that Spengler thought that the Roman Empire suffered from that, that the European European civilization would suffer from this decadence. And what Jeffrey Tucker tries to do, there's a lot of people we know that don't like him, and he's sort of like a punchline, right? 
he tries to romanticize liberalism in the same way that uh, fascists very successfully romanticize war and strife and because that's sort of encoded in our genes yeah. to enjoy it. When, when we see uh, war documentaries or we listen to marches, we, we get that feeling. And it's only through kind of intellectual pursuits like I pencil, for example, where we relearn what well, we just learn about sort of the majesty of the free market and all that, because on its face, the free market isn't sexy, right? The free market and liberalism, it's kind of boring. It's kind of suburban. It's sleepy, right? It's like its like the Shire in, in Lord of the Rings. But war, that's interesting, right? War and strife and conflict, that is why fascism right now, it may not be more successful than liberalism right now, or even libertarianism, radical liberalism. But it's growing so much because it has that romantic allure to it. And I think it's very important to try to counter that, but also to understand. It. Like, there's a reason people love that. People love their little LARP with, uh, you know, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna save the West and all of that, right? Yes. And yeah, yeah. W- without that, an understanding of fascism can't really you can't really have an understanding of fascism without the romantic ideals that draw people to it. All right. Well, we all love our LARPs, and I'm sure we could talk about this for a long time, but unfortunately, we are out of time for today. So once again, I've been Chucky R. Law. With me today, Nicholas and Adrian. Um, You can write us an email at cursediscussions at gmail.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, rape, comment, subscribe, uh, blah, blah, blah. All right. Anyway, uh, bye. Bye. I'm a liberal. Bye. (laughs) 